Congregation, boys and girls, every Sunday when you drive up here, by the entrance stands a sign that identifies this building, Kalamazoo Reformed Church. The word church we are so very familiar with. Throughout the city, we will find churches, all of them called one church or another. Yet we know that even though there are many churches, that yet there is such a difference between many of them. Some churches belong to a certain group of churches, others belong to other groups of churches, and you see this throughout the world. But ultimately, in spite of the fact that what we witness, what we see with our eyes, is a church that is divided in so many different ways, yet we believe and we confess that we believe in one holy Catholic or universal church, that ultimately there are not many churches, but ultimately there is one church, one church with a capital C, one church which we will find throughout the world, one church united to Christ, by a living union. And so even though that church of Jesus Christ in its visible form is sadly very, very divided, yet in Christ there is but one church with a capital C. And we are going to focus on that with the Lord's help in this evening hour by way of Lord's Day 21. Lord's Day 21 of our Heidelberg Catechism. And we are now in the section that is labeled the Holy Ghost. And that not only doesn't apply to Lord's Day 20, but 21, 22, 23, 24, until we get to Lord's Day 25, where we see the heading, the sacraments. So Lord's Day 21, question 54, what believest thou concerning the Holy Catholic Church of Christ? The answer, that the Son of God, from the beginning to the end of the world, gathers, defends, and preserves to himself by his Spirit and Word, out of the whole human race, a church chosen to everlasting life, agreeing in true faith that I am and forever shall remain a living member thereof. Question 55. What do you understand by the communion of saints? The answer, first, that all and everyone who believes, being members of Christ, are in common partakers of him and of all his riches and gifts. Secondly, that everyone must know it to be his duty readily and cheerfully to employ his gifts for the advantage and salvation of other members. Question 56. What believest thou concerning the forgiveness of sins? The answer is that God, for the sake of Christ's satisfaction, will no more remember my sins, neither my corrupt nature, against which I have to struggle all my life long, but will graciously impute to me the righteousness of Christ, that I may never be condemned before the tribunal of God. And so this Lord's Day deals with that holy Catholic or universal church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Three simple thoughts. First of all, the origin of this church. Why is there a church in this world? Why does there continue to be a church in this world? Where does all of this originate? Secondly, we will then see the members of this church. Who are those that belong to that one holy Catholic church? And thirdly, 
we will then focus on the comfort of this church, the foundational message of that church, which revolves around the forgiveness of sins in Christ, beautifully explained for us in the answer to question 56. So the origin of Christ's church, the members of Christ's church, and the comfort of Christ's church. So the word church occurs in our New Testament English translation 80 times. It's a translation of the word ekklesia in Greek. And that word in various forms occurs 108 times in the New Testament and is sprinkled all through the New Testament. It's a very remarkable word. It simply means in the Greek to be called out of to be called out of, ecclesia, a combination of ek and the word kaleo. And how beautifully that describes the very nature of this very unique organization or organism in the world which we call the church. What is it that defines the members of that church throughout the world, what defines it is that all of them have this in common, that by the grace of God, they have been called out of the mass of an ungodly humanity, out of the mass of a perishing world. They have been called out by God to establish a new humanity in the midst of a fallen world. Because that's ultimately what is going on, congregation. And that's been going on from the day Adam and Eve fell. From that day, God began to build a new humanity. And that will be the ultimate outcome. When the history of this world ends, there will be a new humanity. Human beings that have been called out of the world, out of a life of sin, out of the mass of a fallen humanity, called irresistibly by the power of the Holy Spirit to become members of that new humanity that will once populate that new earth, where there will be a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness will dwell. And when that new earth will be populated by redeemed sons and daughters of Adam who have been called out by God to become a people for himself. The Catechism beautifully defines that church and how that church has come into existence, how that church continues until this day. When it says that the Son of God, and so we're going to look, first of all, at the main clause. What is the main clause in his answer? The Son of God gathers, defends, and preserves to himself by his Spirit and Word a church chosen to everlasting life. And so for the origin of that church, of the, for the origin of that, of that new humanity, that new gathering of redeemed sons and daughters of man, we have to go back to the stillness of eternity. That's where that church originates, chosen unto everlasting life. This is only one of two places where the Heidelberg Catechism addresses specifically the doctrine of election. And congregation, to understand the doctrine of election, we need to understand the doctrine of creation. We need to ask ourselves, why was it that God created human beings? He created human beings in order that in them, His only begotten Son would be supremely glorified. And so God eternally purposed that he would create a creature in the image of his only begotten Son, a creature in, with, through, through his Son with whom he would be able to enter into a loving relationship. And such it was with Adam and Eve. 
God created Adam by and for his son. He created Adam in the image of his son. He created Adam specifically so that in his son he would be able to have this intimate love relationship with human beings. And we know that as a result of our fall, that wonderful relationship was broken. But how amazing it is that no sooner has man fallen. And God immediately reveals that in the fullness of time he would send his only begotten son to be the seed of the serpent so that through him fallen sons and daughters after all would become his sons and daughters again. And so the whole purpose of God's eternal counsel of peace, the whole purpose of of election, of predestination, is to bring forth sons and daughters of Adam who, through the Lord Jesus Christ, would be redeemed and be restored to be forever the sons and daughters of the living God. Because it says here that in Christ, God's children have been chosen to everlasting life. And what is everlasting life? Let me explain that again. What did it mean that Adam and Eve were living souls? It didn't just mean that they were physically alive. They were spiritually alive. They were created to forever enjoy that intimate relationship with their Creator and to live in fellowship and communion with their Maker. And that's what we lost in our fall in Adam. And that, that is what, by God's grace, is restored to fallen sinners like we are. That is the blessed benefit of all those who by grace may belong to this church with a capital C. That because of God's eternal sovereign purpose, they are the partakers of everlasting life. A life that begins here. A life that already functions here. And it is within the community of God's people. It is within the community of God's church that that life functions again. Because ultimately the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is the gathering of those who by grace are united to God through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And who in His Son again enjoy the privilege of dwelling in communion and fellowship with Him. That's ultimately what goes on here every Lord's Day. That's why we call the Lord's Day the day of worship. That's why we call our church services worship services. Because what goes on here? What goes on here in this very building? God communicating to us. God revealing himself to us. And we, his people, responding to that which he reveals to us. So I, here in, in this very house of God, this, this original relationship that God created Adam and Eve in, that relationship functions again. And this is but the beginning of what awaits the redeemed people of God. When that day comes, when they will again experience what life means in the fullest sense of the word. That's what makes the existence of God's church here on earth so very amazing. But it's all connected, it's all related to God's only begotten Son. Because ultimately God's objective in gathering a people for himself, his ultimate objective is the glory of his only begotten Son. And so this church has been chosen, therefore, to everlasting life in the Son. 
Open your Bibles, please, to Ephesians 1, where we read this so powerfully stated. Ephesians 1, verses 4 through 6. Ephesians 1, verses 4 through 6. There we read this. He has chosen us, God the Father, He has chosen us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to Himself according to the good pleasure of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, wherein He has made us accepted in the Beloved. So Paul talks here about being chosen in Christ in order to be accepted in Christ. Chosen in Him in order ultimately to become like Him. And so God's, all of God's purposes revolve around His only begotten Son. And that's why not only did He create the world by and for His Son, but the whole work of redemption, the establishment of His church, is by His Son and ultimately for His Son. And that's why the existence of the church revolves entirely around God's Son. And so we can say of all three believers throughout the ages that they have been chosen in the Son. They have been given to the Son. They have been redeemed by the Son. They are drawn to the Son. They are united to the Son. They believe in the Son. They are being conformed to the Son, to be forever with the Son. Chosen in the Son, to become like the Son, and to be forever with the Son. And that's why the Catechism defines the church around the person of the Son. It says that the Son of God, as I've said here many times, this is important to remember, all of God's dealings with man are always in the person of the Son. That's why the whole work of redemption revolves around the person of the Son. And so the Son of God gathers by His Spirit and Word a church chosen unto eternal life. And he gathers that church unto himself. What a beautiful statement that is, congregation. What, a, what, an, what an amazing truth that is. And so if by the grace of God, we may belong to that church with a capital C. If by the grace of God, we may be living members of that church is because God's Son, by His Spirit and by His Word, has been pleased to draw you unto Himself. And that emphasizes again that the very essence and the very nature of all spiritual life revolves around His Son. That's why when Christ, by the mighty work of His Spirit, when He makes us spiritually alive, His one objective in all of His dealings with us is to draw us to Himself over and over again. He gathers His church, a church that He has purchased with His precious blood. We read of that in Acts 20, verse 28. When Paul is addressing the elders of emphasis, and when he reminds them of their responsibility, he speaks of the church of God, which, it says, he hath purchased with his own blood. And he gathers that church. He gathers 
throughout all the generations, from the beginning here to the end of the world, he gathers them. He gathers them irresistibly. He gathers every one of those fallen human beings for whom he gave his life. All of those fallen sinners who in the council of peace were given to him by his Father. All those for whom he committed himself in the fullness of time to purchase their redemption. And that work continues. And that work goes on unhindered in spite of all that comes up against it. And that work will succeed. Christ will succeed ultimately in gathering them all. And that's why the world still continues. And that's why history has correctly been called his story. That's it. It's his story. That's what's going on. That's why the world continues. That's why in the midst of all the confusion that we see in this world, that's why all of those horses that are running in Revelation, the horse of death, the horse of hunger, the horse of calamity, whatever they may be, that one horse is running, the white horse on which Christ rides victoriously through history, gathering his church, gathering them out of the whole human race. That's why when it's all said and done, the promise made to Abraham that in him all the families of the earth would be blessed, that promise will be perfectly fulfilled. We read in Revelation 7, 9, After this I beheld and lo, a great multitude which no man could number of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues stood before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, and palms in their hands. Oh, he gathers it, but he also defends it, and he preserves it. And I've already alluded to that. In other words, we have a Savior who is completely committed to that church. Not only a Savior who gave himself in the fullness of time to secure the redemption of fallen sinners, but a, a Savior who is absolutely committed to the well-being of that church, who is committed to her protection, defending her in the midst of a very hostile world. A world that would love to eliminate that church. A world instigated by the prince of this world, the Satan, the king of darkness whose malicious objective it continues to be to destroy the church of Jesus Christ. And how comforting it is to know that he has never succeeded, and that we may know that he never will succeed. Christ will accomplish his purpose. And so he defends his church, and he preserves his church. Also, our own congregation. Because by means of us, that's how he perpetuates his church. It's by means of the church that he builds the church. And that's why we have the great, great responsibility to be the proclaimers of the gospel of this church. Proclaiming it. Not only to the ends of the world, but proclaiming it, as you have been reminded of last Sunday as well. Proclaiming it precisely where God has placed us to be. Then the catechism goes on. It says, when it begins to shift now towards the members, the living members of that church, and it describes it so simply, agreeing in true faith, and that I am and forever shall remain a living member thereof. And so when we look at the church in its visible form around the world, then we find many true believers who do not agree on everything, who have differences of opinion on certain uh, essential components of the Christian faith. But one thing they all have in common, they all agree in a true faith. 
They all have in common that Christ is the object of their faith. They all have this in common that they love the Lord Jesus Christ. They all have in common that Christ has become their all in all and that they have put their trust in Him. If you travel around the world, you will recognize those true believers. There is an, an amazing thing happens. I once heard, years ago, I heard someone say, whenever true believers meet, the invisible church becomes visible. Becomes visible. And there is that mutual recognition. And that mutual recognition centers around the very person of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is that recognition that we love the same Savior. That, that Christ is our all and in all. And as I said this morning, that's what we see in the story of Mary. What is the essential component of what we see in Scripture? Here's a woman who absolutely loves that Savior, who loved Him so exceedingly that she poured out an entire flask of this expensive ointment over His head. That's the mark of every true believer. And so we go on to the next question. What do you understand by the communion of saints? Communion of saints. And so this question emphasizes that when Christ saves sinners, when he, he gathers them by his spirit and word and brings them into, a, into an intimate relationship with himself, he always establishes a, a communion of saints. And so it is his sovereign will that his people do not live independently of one another. But wherever the Spirit works in the world, you see it in the book of Acts. Wherever the apostles go and preach the gospel, it always results in the establishing of a communion of believers. And that's how the church functions until this very day. That's why we have a congregation here. What are we to understand by the communion of saints? Remarkable, is it not, that it uses the word saints and Scripture uses that word. I, re I realize that believers don't always behave like saints. Sadly, they don't always behave like saints. And yet, we are saints, we are holy ones. Holy ones in Christ. It's precisely if, because we are living members of Him, because we are united to Him, that we are holy ones. Not because of any holiness in ourselves, which we have none, but precisely because of that vital relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, who is called the Holy One of Israel. And so, when we are united to the Holy One of Israel, the Bible calls us saints. And what that word really means, Holy One, that means that we are set apart by God for a very specific purpose. Set apart, separated from a fallen humanity. There's this whole idea of being called out, separated from a fallen humanity, and consecrated to live a life to the glory of the Christ who has redeemed us. And that's why the answer focuses, first of all, on our relationship with Christ. It says, first, that all and everyone who believes, being members of Christ, are in common partakers of Him and of all His riches and His gifts. And it's really important that that's emphasized. Because you see, there will never be a horizontal communion of saints unless there is a vertical relationship with the king of the church, namely the Lord Jesus Christ. And again, look how beautifully and precisely the catechism defines who a believer is. Everyone who believes 
There's that essential, that essential spiritual exercise. Everyone who believes, being members of Christ, being united to Christ, are in common partakers of Him and of all His riches and His gifts. And so what this is telling us is that that living communion, that living community, that community of redeemed sinners, is that the functioning of that community flows out of that vertical relationship with Christ. And the more believers live out of that relationship, the more believers live out of Christ, the more they abide in Him, the more it will manifest itself horizontally. And so what happens when a church becomes backslidden, when many of its members do not faithfully abide in Christ? It will begin to manifest itself also horizontally. So why is it that, sadly, we do find in the church, we, fi we find lovelessness at times. We find discord. We find disunity. It's all because so often we're not living out of that relationship. But the more we abide in Him, the more we experience the reality of what He declares in John 15, that if we abide in Him, he will abide in us and we will bear much fruit. That's why in the early Christian church we read of such remarkable, remarkable manifestations of that, that love manifesting itself horizontally because they lived so very close to Christ. They lived in such close and intimate communion with Him. And before I go on to the second part, I... I wanted to do this earlier, but it just reminds me. Um, let's turn to the Belgian Confession, because there is a beautiful description of what it means to be a living member of Christ. So let's turn, I think it's on page 19 and 20, if I'm not mistaken, in the back of your Psalter. And I just want to read part of Article 29, which so beautifully defines what it means to be a member of the Church of Christ. So Article 29, it's the third paragraph towards the bottom of the page. So let's read this carefully. It says, with respect to those who are members of the church, they may be known by the marks of Christians, namely, by faith. And when they have received Jesus Christ, the only Savior, they avoid sin, follow after righteousness, love the true God and their neighbor, neither turn aside to the right or left, and crucify the flesh with the works thereof. But this is not to be understood as if there did not remain in them great infirmities, but they fight against them through the Spirit all the days of their life, continually taking refuge in the blood, death, passion and obedience of our Lord Jesus Christ in whom they have remission of sins through faith in him. Congregation, this is a, a wonderful description of what it means to be a living member of the Lord Jesus Christ. You can turn to this passage. You can examine yourself in light of that passage whether you recognize yourself in that description. But then it goes on, it says, secondly, that everyone must know it to be his duty readily and cheerfully to employ his gifts for the advantage and salvation of other members. So what that simply is saying, that by virtue of our relationship with Christ, we have an obligation of love towards those who also belong to that same Christ, who belong to the same spiritual family, who belong to the same spiritual household. 
That means we are obligated to manifest love towards them. We are to do so readily and cheerfully. And we are to employ our gifts that God has given us for the advantage and salvation of all other members. Actually, something like this is worthy of an entire sermon, but I just need to be very, very brief here. That means what is true in a nuclear family, in other words, your personal family, in your personal family, it ought to be that your children who have two sets of parents, one set of parents in common, by virtue of their love relationship with their parents, they ought to love their siblings as well. And so it must be in the household of God. The catechism is saying is that the saints of God, the living members of the church, have an obligation towards one another have an obligation to be engaged in seeking the well-being and the welfare of each other. To, to use the gifts that God has given us, and those gifts vary. We don't all have the same gifts. But what we are called to do, we are, what we are called to do is to use those gifts, those gifts that God has uniquely given us. And we need to think of ourselves, what can I do? to promote the advantage and the salvation of other members of our congregation. And so I'll give you a challenge. Go home and go through the directory and see if there's anyone in our church family that you've never had any real personal contact with. And if you haven't, I would encourage you to do it. Because we are to do it cheerfully and readily. We are to do it unconditionally. That means that we are called to love all the members of this church family, all the members of the household of God, regardless of their personality, regardless of, of whatever may pertain to them. And I know that's who we are. Some people are more lovable than others. Some people we feel more naturally attracted to than others. But we are to be no respecter of persons. We have an obligation of love towards all the members of the family and the household of God. To be committed readily and cheerfully to use our gifts for the advantage and the spiritual well-being of the other members of the household of God. That brings us to question 56. That speaks of the comfort of the church. What believest thou concerning the forgiveness of sins? And why is that important? Because sin remains a reality in the church of Jesus Christ. Sadly, sin remains a reality. Sin remains a reality in the life of every believer. In spite of the fact that we, by grace, are united to Christ. Yet every believer, though they are united to Him, have to struggle with the reality of sin until their dying day. And we, as a church family have to deal with the reality of sin. That's why from time to time, the office bearers of the church have the task of administering discipline in the body of Christ because of the reality of sin. We know that the Apostle Paul so powerfully expressed that reality in Romans 7. That reality of of struggling with that wretched inclination within. When he says, that which I desire to do, I do not do. And that which I hate, that I do. And finally he groans in holy despair and says, Oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? 
But the beautiful thing is that it's precisely within the church that the gospel continues to be proclaimed. And that's why time and again Christ is lifted up. That's why time and again the gospel directs us to return, even when we sin, even when we fail, to return to a God who will always be ready to forgive. And that's why the doctrine of the forgiveness of sins is such an essential component of the message of the gospel. That is our sacred obligation as the servants of God to so proclaim the word of God that Lord's Day after Lord's Day we are redirected to Christ. When we come here and when we have perhaps stumbled through the week and have failed in many ways, to come to the house of God as a spiritual oasis and to be redirected to the Lord Jesus Christ, to be redirected to find the pardon of our sins, not just once, because of course when a sinner puts his trust in Christ for the first time, that simple act of faith secures the full pardon of sin. But the gospel gives us more than that. Because the gospel also tells us that when, as believers, we continue to fail and we continue to stumble and we continue to falter, that we are ever and again redirected to the Lord Jesus Christ, redirected to that fountain opened against sin and uncleanness, against all uncleanness. And so the answer is very beautiful here, is it not? That God for the sake of Christ's satisfaction, will no more remember my sins, neither my corrupt nature, against which I have to struggle all my life long. Do you recognize that congregation? Do you recognize that statement? There are those who profess Christianity who don't seem to have that struggle. But the true members, the living members of Christ, they live with that reality. Not only that we commit sins, sometimes consciously, sometimes unconsciously, but, but that corrupt nature. Oh, what a burden that becomes to the living members of the church. And the reason it is a burden and the reason it grieves us and it weighs us down is precisely because of that living union with Christ. Oh, what a vile thing sin becomes. I heard someone once say, before conversion, we pursue sin. After conversion, sin pursues us. That's the difference, you see. Because, yes, believers do sin. And sometimes they sin greatly. And sometimes they sin grievously. As we know from biblical examples as well. But it's a matter of grief to them. That's why David was a miserable man for so many months. Just read Psalm 32 where he describes how miserable he was until Nathan came. And finally... He confessed his sin, but then what do we read? That no sooner does he confess his sin, and Nathan immediately in God's name says to him, your sins are pardoned. Such is the nature of the gospel. And that is the sacred obligation that we have as God's servants to preach again and again the fullness and the completeness of the satisfaction of Christ. The wonder expressed here that he will graciously impute to me the righteousness of Christ. That's what happens when we take hold of Christ. God imputes to me the perfect, flawless righteousness of his only begotten Son. And that is an irreversible gift that is a gift that cannot be canceled by my 
corrupt nature against which I have to struggle all my life long. Because God's gifts, the gift of salvation, is without repentance. And that's why what a blessing it is. We may come to the house of God and when the gospel redirects us to Christ, redirects us to Him and His finished work, redirects us to His satisfaction, to His finished work which He accomplished on the cross so that, it says here, I may never be condemned before the tribunal of God. What an amazing statement that is. Never be condemned before the tribunal of God. Because Christ, dear believer, Christ was condemned before that tribunal in your case. So is it not true then in the last day that all men will be judged according to their works? Yes, that is true. But for the true believer, that day will be the day of his public justification. When Christ will declare before the whole world that you are redeemed and that you are complete in him. Never to be condemned before the tribunal of God. What an encouraging truth that is. That's why Romans 7, verse 26, 25 and 26 are followed immediately by Romans 8, verse 1. Because in Romans 7, verse 25, we're listening to a man who condemned himself. A man who said, oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? But then he rejoices and he says, but I thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And then he begins triumphantly, Romans 8, there is therefore. There is therefore, even though he had to condemn himself, there is therefore now no condemnation for them that are in Christ Jesus. That's why this part of the, the Apostles' Creed is so very precious. That's why the church of Jesus Christ here on earth, the militant church, the church that is still engaged in warfare, that's why the militant church is encouraged time and again by the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why the message of salvation in Christ never grows old. That's why that message needs to be preached over and over again. That's why we are called to comfort. Comfort God's people and to say to Jerusalem, your warfare is accomplished. Your iniquity is pardoned. For you have received of the Lord's hand double for all your sins. Oh, the wonder that even though I continued to struggle my entire life long against my corrupt nature, after grace, after having come to Christ, struggling until my last breath, that that struggle will not disannul my salvation. That's how complete the work of Christ is. The Christ who has chosen, who has gathered his church and who does gather his church. Gather all those who have been chosen in him to be redeemed by him, ultimately to be like him. This Christ is completely committed to the spiritual well-being of his church. He is truly a Christ who will never forsake the work of his own hands. O congregation, are we living members of this church? Jesus said in John 6, verse 53, 54 and 56, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. So what, that is, what he is saying, except you derive all of your spiritual strength and energy from 
my sacrifice, you have no life in you. Whoso eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood hath eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. He that eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood dwelleth in me, and I in him. And so what Christ is saying here, the living soul, the living member of his church, finds his life in Christ, cannot live without Christ. The living member of the church finds their salvation in that precious sacrifice, finds their rest in that finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why we have the Lord's Supper on a regular basis, to remind us over and over again that we need to live out of that sacrifice. Are we living members of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ? Lest we perish, having belonged to the visible church, without having been members of the invisible church. And to belong to the visible church is a great privilege. To grow up under the preaching of the gospel, but to perish not having believed in the Christ of that church, not having believed in the Christ who is preached in that church, who is offered to you freely and without money and without price, will be a hell in hell. Oh, God forbid that any of us would die having been but lifeless branches attached to the vine outwardly but without a living relationship with the vine himself. And so may it be true of us by God's grace that we, by a true faith, am and forever shall remain a living member of that church which the Son of God gathers, defends, and preserves to himself, by his spirit and word. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, wilt thou bless thy word. We have been reminded in this evening hour what it means to be a living member of the church of Jesus Christ, chosen eternally in him, given to him, a church purchased by him, a church that he gathers, protects, and defends. A church chosen to everlasting life in and through him. Lord, give us no rest un unless we may know on biblical grounds that we are living members of the church of Jesus Christ. And so go with us into this coming week. We ask for thy blessing upon all that we may undertake, either in the workplace or at home or wherever thou dost call us to be. Keep us safely. Gather with us this Wednesday as we will gather for our monthly topic night. And we ask for thy blessing upon the instruction that will be given. And bring us here again this coming Lord's Day. And graciously pardon our sins, even of this day and hour, only for the sake of thy Son, in whom thou art a God ready to forgive. We ask it in his name alone. Amen.